James and Jen, good to be here tonight. My name is Paul, if I haven't met. It seems like a long time since I've been at 6 p.m., so it's really good to be here tonight. Uh, we are in John 6. As I said before, this is my least favorite gospel, but this is a great chapter. So I'm going to pray for us as I come to the Word tonight. Uh, Father, thank you for your Word, which is living and active. Thank you that by your Spirit you uh, speak to us in such powerful ways. I pray, Lord, for an opening of our eyes a softening of our hearts that we might see and believe these glorious truths in this chapter tonight. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Jesus said this amazing statement. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me, whoever comes to me, rather, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's an extraordinary truth. He's saying, When we come to Jesus, he promises to feed us and to nourish us. When when we come to Jesus, he promises to provide for us and to protect us. When we come to Jesus, he promises to satisfy us and to secure us, Not, not just for this world, but for the world to come. And I believe our world needs to believe that Jesus is the bread of life. Did you know that Australia has one of the highest rates of millionaires of any country in the world? And yet, Australia has the highest rate of anxiety of any country in the world. Are those two linked? Perhaps. Uh, the paradox of wealth, it seems like the more that you have, the more that you think that you need and the more that you want and the more anxious we become. And our city and our community and our nation is full of anxious people. Weird, so weary, tired, anxious people. And we need to hear that Jesus fully satisfies. I've got just two words for you tonight. You can, you can remember two words, yes? Here's the first word. Abundance. Abundance. God's extraordinary provision and protection. That's the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. So open your Bibles, John 6, verse 1. Where are we? We're on the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. This lake had two names, a bit like harbour and freshwater. It's the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, and Jesus is on the northeast side of the lake. What's the time of year? Verse 4. It's the Jewish Passover festival. So if you know your Bibles, the, the Passover was the annual festival where God's people gathered to remember, to remember how God had rescued them from Egypt through the Red Sea to remember how God had redeemed them through the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost and and spared them from the wrath of God, to remember how God had provided for them daily with that manna in the wilderness. It's a time of remembrance and celebration. And who's there, verse 2? A great crowd are there. A great crowd of people who are following Jesus, not because they want to hear his teaching, but they're just following because they want to see a miracle or, or see a healing. Back in chapter 2, Jesus called that a spurious faith. People who are not really believing. But this crowd, there's a massive need because they're in this remote place 
and there's no bread, and they are hungry. And just so you get grasp how big this crowd is, come down to verse 10, about 5,000 men were there. So if you add in the women and the boys and the girls, maybe up to 20,000 people are there. So remember those days where you used to go down to New Year's Eve and celebrate down at Bradfield Park? 20,000 people, that's the size of the crowd. And they're all hungry. And Jesus sees their need, verse 5, and he has compassion. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, now why did he choose Philip? Because Philip lived at Bethsaida. Philip is a local boy. He's from the area. He knows the area. And he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? I think we're supposed to imagine Jesus with kind of a wry smile saying, you know the area, Philip. Where's your local Woolies? Where's your local Maccas? Where's your KFC around here? Where can we get food for these people? But it's just a test, verse 6. Jesus is testing Philip to see whether he really believes. And Philip fails the test spectacularly, verse 7. Philip only sees mouths to feed. He doesn't see the power of the Messiah. He says to Jesus, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have just one bite. He's just thinking the minimum, one bite. And Jesus says, you watch, I'm going to do the maximum. Andrew's there, verse 8, forever known as Simon Peter's brother. He says, verse 8, here's, verse nine, here's a small boy. He's got the most famous packed lunch in history. Five small barley loaves and two small... I wonder what his mother thought that morning when he made his lunch. <laughs> that for the rest of history, that lunch would be remembered. But just so you get it, like barley is the, is the grain of the poor. This is poor man's bread. We're not talking lavish sourdough from the bakery. Small, four, sorry, five small poor man's loaves and two small fish. So don't think barramundi, think two small sardines. So you've got a tiny, tiny meal. You've got a massive crowd. It looks impossible. And so the question of verse 9 is a great question. How far will they go among so many? And the answer is not very far. Let's do some maths. I love maths. Let's do some sums. Five plus two equals seven. It's not 20,000. Let's go again. Five plus two equals seven. Is that number important in the Bible? Seven is a number of perfection or completeness. Let, let, let's do that, that, that sum again. Five, because something's missing. Five plus two, plus the power and presence of God equals whatever you can imagine. See, when you add God to any equation, he can provide way above and beyond what you expect or imagine. And when you put these little loaves and fish into the hands of Jesus, just wait and see what he can and will do with them. Now, before we continue, we have a pastoral word. Just in this passage, how Jesus uses ordinary, insignificant people 
to demonstrate his power. See that? He didn't need to use Philip or Andrew or the small boy. Jesus could have just prayed and caused bread to fall down from heaven. He had the power to do that. But Jesus chose to use his ordinary men and boys and women to provide for the needs of the people. And I share that because I sometimes think that many of us feel that we are insignificant or powerless or worthless, but in the hands of Jesus, he can take your littleness and use it for greatness. Stop focusing on how small you are and start thinking about how big God is. I love the detail in verse 10. John says there was plenty of grass in that place. Uh, Mark says there was lavish green grass. Isn't God so good? And they all sit down ready for their lunch. And Jesus takes these five small barley loaves and he he gives thanks. He doesn't bless the food. He he raises his head to heaven and he prays. Maybe the, the typical Jewish prayer, blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. You give us all things and we thank you for this food. Now again, we're supposed to be envisioning this scene where Jesus has his five loaves in his hands, but there are 20,000 people out there. How are the disciples feeling? Excited? A bit embarrassed? It looks a bit foolish, doesn't it? But Jesus takes this bread and we're told in verse 11, he Distributed to those who were seated, look at these next words, as much as they wanted. These 20,000 people, they ate and they ate and they ate and they ate until they were fully satisfied. See the contrast, verse 9, how far will they go among so many? And the answer is, in the hands of Jesus, as far as you need them to go. I love this fact. This is is fact. This is not fiction. This really happened. And I hope you read your Bible like this. I love the story of the man who was in a hotel room one night, a bit bored, and he opened the the, the drawer and found a Gideon's Bible. And he flicked to the back of the Bible, and he saw these maps. Remember there's maps at the back of the Bible? And suddenly the lights went on and went, this is real. This is geographical and this is historical. This really happened. And he read the gospel and gave his life to Christ. Now, have you ever met anyone who was converted through maps in the Bible? But this man realized this really happened. I want to say to you tonight, if you were there that day, if you were there that night, you would experience the Lord Jesus Christ perform this miraculous provision that fully satisfies and is all-encompassing See in verse 12 that nothing is wasted. Or verse 13, there are 12 basketfuls left over. Why 12? Because there are 12 apostles and there are 12 tribes of Israel and Jesus is trying to teach us that he is more than able to provide for all of God's people all around the world. So let me ask you, do you really believe that? Do you believe in God's abundant provision for you? That the Lord Jesus Christ can provide everything you need need. Not everything you want, but everything you need. You can put food on your table, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and water in the tap, because you just take that for granted, don't you? That's the Lord's provision. And actually, he's been so kind to us, he's given us more than we ask or imagine, because most of us here have more clothes you could ever wear, 
And so much food in your pantry, you chuck half it away. And bigger houses than we really need. And even this week, the Lord Jesus has been showing me how he provides in abundance. I bumped into, I bumped into somebody, the right person at exactly the right time to hear the word I needed to hear. That was God's provision. Someone texted me a, a Bible verse. It's exactly the right time. That was God's provision. Do you, do you go through life just seeing all these things as, as Jesus' miraculous provision for you at the time that you need it? And again, it's humbling, but often he takes my little, my five loaves and two fishes, and, and he, he blesses it and does abundantly more than I ask or imagine. So he abundantly provides, and he abundantly protects you see, I imagine at this point the, the disciples were on this, this spiritual high, this spiritual mountaintop, because they'd just seen Jesus feed 20,000 people with a packed lunch. But what's the next thing that happens to them? They experience a dangerous storm. And you know, from my experience, life is often like that. You go from delighting in the treats of God to this struggling with a trial or tragedy or darkness. So I love why John, how John has done this. He puts uh, verses 16 to 21. They're beautiful verses. They are rich verses. They are multi-layered verses. So the disciples are on this lake. And look at verse 17. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. And he's not just talking about the, the physical situation or circumstance. There's a spiritual element there. Spiritually speaking, without Jesus, we are in darkness. And a storm comes up, verse 18, because the Lake of Galilee was renowned for its storms. It's all below sea level. So they're in this boat, and they're all alone. And they're exhausted because they've been rowing three or four miles. That's six kilometers. So you've got these, these disciples who have gone from this spiritual high, but now they're in the darkness, in the boat, with storms all around, and they're exhausted, they're tired, they're anxious, they're scared. And then they see Jesus but he's walking on water. And not surprisingly, they're frightened. At verse 20, he said to them, it is I, or literally I am. Isn't that beautiful? I am. Do not be afraid, he says. That's the most common command in the Bible. Do not fear. The Lord Jesus says, trust me, take hold of me. I'm with you. And look at verse 21. Then... In response to the words of Jesus, then they were willing to take Jesus into the boat. They invited Jesus into the boat with them, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. They got through the storm by the words of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. See, just because God provides an abundance does not mean that you will not face trials and tragedies and storms and sadness and sorrow. But the only way through that trial to handle your trials is to invite Jesus into the boat, let him be captain, hand it over to him. Because when you hand your fears and your anxieties and your troubles and your trials to the Lord Jesus Christ, if he can feed 20,000 people, if he can walk on water, then he can calm your lurking fears, can't he? My first word, abundance, his provision and protection. But this chapter is not really about physical needs. It's actually about your spiritual needs. Because Jesus is not just concerned for your stomach, he's concerned for your salvation. So here's our second word. Our first word is abundance, and our second word is assurance. Assurance. 
assurance. God's promised land. Because Jesus wants these disciples and us to know that heaven is our home and to know we're going to get there. Tim Keller says this, the great basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. And that's what this miraculous feeling is all about. It's not just physical bread. It's spiritual bread, because Jesus says twice in this this chapter, verse 35, again in verse 47, 48, I am the bread of life. I'm the source of life. I will feed you, I will nourish you, I will equip you, I will protect you, I will satisfy you. It's a great promise in verse 47. Very truly I tell you, says Jesus, the one who believes, who trusts, has eternal life. Look at that word has. Not perhaps, not not maybe, not if you work hard enough, but you have eternal life just by believing. There's this this confidence, this certainty, this assurance here that you have eternal life. See, I think the problem is so often we're just so focused on the immediate needs, so focused on filling our bellies that we forget the eternal perspective, we forget eternity. Jesus is really blunt down in verses 26 and 27. He says, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says, you people, you're obsessed with your physical bread and endless quest to get more food into your belly, but I'm talking about spiritual things. I can give you a food that will not spoil and will not perish and will bring you to eternal life. Because life is not found in a loaf of bread. Life is found in a living being. His name is Jesus. Let me ask you, are you certain of heaven? Are you absolutely confident that you've got a place in heaven and you're going to get there? Because we can be and we should be and we must be. Let me give you three grounds that Jesus gives us, three grounds for our assurance. The first one is this, is, is the will of the Father. The will of the Father. Verse 37 is a theologically rich verse. Look at it with me. All those the Father gives me will come to me, says Jesus. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. These are the two train tracks of Christian salvation. The Father chooses, but we come to Jesus. The Father gives his people to the Lord Jesus, but we still have to come to Jesus. It's what the Bible calls election or predestination. God has chosen you. Before time began, before you had a chance to do anything good or anything bad, God chose you, God saw you, and God loved you and says, you are mine. And there is no greater grounds for your assurance to know you're chosen and elected and predestined by God. If he's chosen you for all eternity, he'll keep you for all eternity. So the will of the Father is the first ground. The second ground is the work of the Son. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And there are two great works that Jesus highlights in this chapter. One is the incarnation and one is the crucifixion. You see, the Jews are just grumbling. They're comparing Jesus to the manna from heaven. And they're grumbling down in verse 41, 42. 
the Jews began to grumble about Jesus because Jesus had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I was incarnate. I'm the divine who's become incarnate. Verse 42, they, they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We, we've been on Ancestry.com. We, we, we know his parents. How can he say, I came down from heaven? See, all these people who are confused about how Jesus can be fully God and yet come down to earth. But that is a truth that you need to believe. The incarnation of the Son of God. And the second truth is his crucifixion. Because the Jews grumble about his incarnation in verse 41. They are arguing about his crucifixion down in verse 52. Because the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man Jesus give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53, Jesus said to them, very true I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. What's he talking about? Flesh and blood, eating his flesh, drinking his blood. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper had yet to be instituted. And if he was saying here that you had to take communion to get eternal life, that would contradict grace. So when Jesus talks about his flesh and his blood, we're supposed to think the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of our Saviour. His body was broken, his blood was shed. And it was shed so that you might have eternal life, that you might be forgiven. And those two truths about Jesus, his incarnation, he is the bread from heaven, his crucifixion, his his flesh was broken, his blood was shed. Those two truths assure you of your salvation. Let me ask you, what part did you have to play in the incarnation on the crucifixion? All you did was mess up and sin. That's the only part you played. And Jesus, Jesus did it all. And a third ground for your assurance It's the will of the Father, it's the work of the Son, and it's the wooing of the Holy Spirit. Because verse 63 tells us it's the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The Spirit of God is the one who prompted you and prodded you and chased you and convicted you. The Spirit of God is the one who regenerated you. Again, what part did you have to play? Nothing. And when you understand that about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the wooing of the Spirit, then your salvation, your assurance is based on him, not on you. And that promise of verse 39 is just glorious. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father, that Jesus will lose none of those he has given me, but will raise them up on the last day. Isn't that a glorious guarantee that God will keep you, that God will get you to glory? You can sit here today absolutely confident of your place in heaven, not because of your wisdom, not because of your intellect, not because of your strength, but because of the work of the Father. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. He will take you to glory. He will give you a new body on that last day. And can I encourage you every day this week when you stand in front of the mirror and look at your aging body, decaying body, saying, that's okay, we're going to have a new body, I'll be raised up on the last day. Praise the Lord for that. It's Fanny Crosby who wrote the great hymn, Blessed Assurance. 
Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. First, we have the privilege of knowing, of being confident that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ. You will get to glory because of the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. So two simple words, abundance and assurance. My only question is this, do you believe? Do you really believe? Jesus says very clearly, the work of God is to believe. Believe in the one he has sent to believe in Jesus. Whoever believes has eternal life. And I reckon this is the greatest shock of this whole chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, beginning of chapter 6, there's a great crowd following Jesus. Hundreds, thousands of fans following, flocking to Jesus. But how does the chapter end? Look down to verse 66. From this time, many of his own disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That is shocking, isn't it? Many people saw Jesus, heard Jesus, but they chose not to follow. And I think that's a warning for our church. As I've said before, Jesus does not want fans, he wants followers. Please just don't come to Jesus for what you can get from him. Slot machine Jesus. Material needs Jesus. Give me what I want, what I really, really want. Please don't come to Jesus just to be religious. What must I do? to get eternal life. You come to Jesus because you are helpless and you are broken and he can bring healing and satisfaction and forgiveness for your weary souls. So do you believe? How do you know I really believe? There are three invitations here, all saying the same thing. Verse 35, whoever comes to Jesus, comes to Jesus, draws near to Jesus, listens to Jesus, accepts his offer of life. If you come to Jesus, you have eternal life. Verse 40, you look to the Son. Whoever looks to the Son, who has their eyes fixed on Jesus, not on themselves, but on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see him on that road to Calvary. You see him on that cross. You see the empty tomb. Your eyes are fixed on him, not on yourself. You have eternal life. But my favorite image here is in verse 57. But Jesus says this, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Feeding on Jesus, feasting on Jesus. I'm guessing that everybody here has, what, three meals a day at least, plus a few snacks. Why do you feed your earthly body? Because you need food. You need food to live. And Jesus said, well, feed on me for your own soul. You need to feed on Jesus to live. And sometimes your meals are this lavish feast. Other times they're just mundane. Sometimes you're snacking. Same with Jesus. Snack on your saviour. Have a mundane meal with Jesus. Munch on Jesus or feast on Jesus. I don't care what you do, but just keep coming to Jesus and feeding on him. And I can promise you, if you do that, if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, you keep coming to Jesus, you keep feasting on Jesus, then you will have assurance of your eternal life. So abundance and assurance, because Jesus really is the only bread that truly satisfies. Let me pray.
Father, thank you for calling us and choosing us. Thank you for opening our eyes to see Jesus. Thank you for Jesus coming down from heaven to earth, taking on on flesh, being tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. Thank you for his obedience to walk to that lonely hill of Calvary. Thank you for his death, his sacrificial death. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for your spirit who woos us and calls us and gives us life. Thank you, Father, for the way that you assure us and guarantee us of our eternal salvation. And then we thank you, Lord, for your abundant provision. Thank you that day after day and hour after hour, you provide more than we need and more than we ask. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name.